1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Jennifer Galliano, the author of A Primer for Teaching Digital History 10 Design Principles. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Great. I wonder if you could begin this uh, interview by telling us a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
1: Sure. Um, My name is Jennifer, like I said, um, and I am a historian by training. I work at IUPUI in Indianapolis, Indiana, where I'm an associate professor of history, Native American and Indigenous studies and American studies. Uh, And I came to this particular project By invitation of Antoinette Burton, who's the series editor for um, the Primer series at Duke University Press. And she wrote to me and sort of said, you know, hey, I've I've got this Primer series and we've been doing these really fabulous books about – um, environmental history and women's history and global history, and we really want to do a digital history book. Would this be something you would be interested in? And I, of course, wrote back immediately and said, "Yes, that would be awesome." Um, and so that's how the primer sort of came to be was a lovely invitation from a great scholar who sort of said, "You know, we're looking for someone who can talk about how to do." You know, syllabus development and classroom activities and teaching in a research based class in digital history. Now, tell the audience what is digital history? So, digital history at its most basic is using computers to understand and produce information about the historical record. So I tend to think of it as a spectrum. It can be everything from, you know, digitizing information and putting it out on the internet to using things like algorithms to analyze documents and images to um, building mobile applications and games so that you're, you know, reproducing and recreating historical environments. It's really a pretty broad spectrum. But the thing that unites it is, is sort of using historical evidence and, and historical content to really think about the past uh, and where our future can go.
0: You are also the co director of the Humanities Intensive Learning and Teaching Institute. How have you incorporated digital history with that institute?
1: Uh, so, HILT, uh, which I co direct with Trevor Munoz, who's a librarian and director at um, the Maryland Institute for Technology and the Humanities at the University of Maryland. Um, HILT is a training institute, so what we basically do is we bring in dozens of the best instructors we can find to offer courses on topics in digital humanities, Um, and digital humanities is sort of an umbrella field under which things like digital history and archaeology and library and information science and other things sort of fit. And so what HILT sort of did in relationship to this book is exposed me to some of the best teachers, I think, that exist today. And part of my sort of joy of Hilt is that I get to go into all of their classrooms and learn from them and talk to them about how they teach, you know, their specialities and and what they do and and how they do it so well. And that's very much informed my own practice as a teacher. And that's the result of that is what you see in the book, which is sort of a a very interdisciplinary way of thinking about how we approach the digital history classroom that blends things like history, but also information studies and computer science and archeology span and anthropology and museum studies. And to sort of bring all of those disciplines into the classroom to really think about what does it mean to learn about the past using computers and computational tools?
0: Now, Um, History is changing. The way we um, put out history is changing. What are some of the ways in which teachers have to change because of these outside forces?
1: You know, I think one of the initial things when we think about, you know, how teachers have to respond is that, you know, a lot of times when we approach assignments for students, we tend to think that, you know, a five paragraph essay with a thesis statement and three body paragraphs and a conclusion is is sort of the way to write a historical argument. And part of what digital history has done is suggest that there are other ways and formats to get historical content out to the public and out to other people. So it can be things like a podcast like this, it could be a website, it could be a Wikipedia entry really sort of what digital history has done for teachers is to suggest that where people learn about the past is not just in books and scholarly articles. It's at museums. It's on the internet. It's in historical games. It's in mobile apps. It's in all kinds of sort of different spaces. And for each of those spaces, we sort of have to write arguments that fit people's needs and and their desires right so bringing in video and audio and and different types of material to really interest the public and and interest our students in what we're thinking about now you talked
0: about the american social history project can you tell us about that
1: sure so the american social history project is actually a project from the late 80s and early 90s um, that was developed out of new york where what they were interested in was making available to researchers the sort of core data, the the core evidence of American social life. So they wanted to basically digitize all the records and make them available as sort of a collection that came with sort of people's history so they did textbooks they did cd-roms that you could get and order and those collections of documents then became sort of the raw materials that that people could use and so when we talk about the origins of digital history a lot of times we're talking about projects like the American Social History Project, which really worked to digitize materials and to send those materials out so that people could look at the original documents as they were reading a textbook or as they were reading, you know, a monograph about a particular topic.
0: Now, there's a lot of historical misinformation. How does digital history deal with that?
1: <laughs> so, I like to joke with colleagues that you know, one of the best things about the internet and the digital age is that information is at people's fingertips. And one of the worst things about the internet and the digital age is that information is at people's fingertips. (laughs) Um, So part of what digital history does is encourage us to think about what we call digital literacy, which is understanding the context under which information is produced and created, but also who it is that's writing it and where it comes from. And so when we think about historical inaccuracies, you know, they they sort of spread like wildfire through the internet. But there are also places where we can stop and sort of say to people, no, no, this is wrong. And here's actually the correct way to understand this. Um, and in fact, right now, I'm, I'm actually in Scotland as we're talking, and I'm here in Scotland working on a project on a particular method of, of understanding historical accuracy and, and data accuracy. And in, in fact, it's called Linked Open Data, and it's a way of establishing authority and authenticity and accuracy of information on the internet. Um, so, you know, the internet has its goods, but it also has its bads. And and part of what historians will really want to do is is show people that when misinformation circulates, there's a way to sort of intervene and correct those narratives. And just remind people that, you know, we want to make sure we're using trusted sources. We want to make sure that we're, you know, not sharing information that's harmful to others. Um, And and that's sort of what is really great about the digital age is that, you know, everyone gets a voice. um, And at the same time, those voices can be amplified when they are correcting misinformation.
0: So sources, tell us more about sources as data and how that's so important in teaching.
1: Sure. So, you know, the bedrock of history is a discipline. And in fact, the bedrock of most humanities disciplines like sociology and anthropology and linguistics and others is evidence, right? It's, it's the actual primary source. So primary sources are materials that are created in the moment of an event or in the moment of sort of a person's life. So things like the diaries we write in, the photographs that we take, the records that we create, um, those are all sources. And so for historians, you know, we talk a lot about sources as evidence, right? That we need sources to tell us about the past and to allow us to interpret, you know, things that have happened. Well, part of that sort of transformation of the digital age is recognizing that every source is its own sort of data point. It is its own sort of um, moment in analysis and study. And so when we say sources are data, what we really mean is sources are containers that hold and transmit information. And part of what digital methods and digital analysis can do is to look at sources not just individually, but at scale, right? So one of the most famous examples is, you know, what would you do with a million books, right? That's that's one of the premises of the Google Books project was, what would we do if we could analyze a million books? Um, and, and one of the examples I give in my book is not only what would you do if you could look at a million books, but in a digital age, I can look at a million books simultaneously using algorithms and using computational methods. And that's one of the affordances of thinking of sources as data and as sets of material is that it's not like I sit down and I read every source individually, sequentially, one right after the other. Instead, with computation, I can actually read all of those sources in parallel with one another. Now, the thing that's important about that, though, is just because I read everything in parallel and and can compute, you know, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands or millions of records and sources at the same time, doesn't actually say that I create meaning, right? So that's part of what digital historians do is, is suggest that as it's important that we think about sources and data, it's also important that we understand the context of their production, how they were created, who created them, for what purpose, and how those sources you know, sort of circulate and inhabit particular cultural contexts. And that's where the most exciting digital history comes from, is people who look at sources as data, not as sort of raw materials without context, but sources as raw materials that represent very specific contexts of their production and creation.
0: Now we're always looking at learning outcomes. You describe history methods and technology. How is that incorporated into learning outcomes as instructors?
1: Well, one of the most um, simplistic outcomes for for instructors, you know, as a history outcome, is the ability to actually read a source and understand what it's saying. You know, so there's a there's a famous sort of formula, which is you know who, what, when, where, why, and significance, right? And a lot of times when we're teaching students about sources, we spend an awful lot of time saying, you know, can you identify the who? Can you identify what? Can you identify why? Those sorts of things, and you know, when we think about digital methods, it's not just, can we identify those questions? It's what does the format give us? What does the way it's being communicated tell us? So for example, you know, how do we understand something that's a tweet differently than we understand a blog post differently than we understand a podcast and how might the choices we make about which technologies we use to communicate, allow us to do certain things or limit us from doing certain things and that's where the technological outcomes come in is part of our goals as digital historian is to help students understand that technologies themselves are not neutral that they come with biases and processes built into them that allow or privilege certain ways of knowing and being, right? So, you know, it used to be on the internet, you couldn't use audio and video, right? Everything was textual. And then we created the graphical browser. And now all of a sudden, we can not only do audio and video, but we can include 3D images, and full scale digital worlds that have been built. And so the question I sort of always encourage my students to think about, and when I'm training instructors to think about is, How does the form of how we encounter something force us to, you know, engage with that source in a very specific way, right? What is the difference between looking at something on your cell phone and looking at something on a computer screen versus having a physical document in front of you? And how do we understand those changes between form and format as influential in how we interpret a source or a document or a point of data. Now, everybody's looking for assignments
0: to give. Give us an assignment that a student could do based on maybe a data set.
1: So there's tons of public data sets available, the Library of Congress, um, the Digital Public Library of America, local libraries have data sets. And actually, one of my favorite ones to do with students is actually to ask them um, over the course of the day to identify where they encounter data sets um, and it's it's kind of a funny thing. They don't realize, for example, that like when they're posting to Twitter, that they're creating a data set. And so one of the things that I'll do with them is say, you know, we they spend the day sort of, you know, every time they touch a piece of data, they sort of write it down. And then when they come to class, one of the things we do is I ask them to go look for data sets that would complement what they're doing. So, for example, um, I have a student who's a, an activist who's really interested in Um, sort of indigenous activism and is very much sort of supportive of things like, you know, water rights and land use rights and things like that. And they were posting a bunch of stuff about, you know, how um, their sort of um, interests align to particular activist causes. And one of the things I did to them was I said, you know, okay, so let's sit down and identify what historical data sets are out there that would allow you to bolster the arguments you want to make about, you know, how land has been used and how water has been used. Um, and and that's one of my favorite sort of assignments because students sometimes think that history, because it is the past, isn't relevant to them. And so by sitting them down and sort of showing them how to identify data sets, how to, you know, discover pieces of information that matter to them and in their interests, all of a the sudden they realize that they're really actually interested in history and interested in The notion that like what somebody wrote in the 1920s about their experience in Indiana, for example, might actually be something that they care about and are interested in and want to use.
0: So now these digital methods are are these an extension of what historians have already been doing? What what's going on here?
1: They are. You know, it's funny when people start working in digital history, sometimes it can be really overwhelming because there are so many methods to choose from. Um, So there's digital oral history, there's digital ethnography, there's digital document analysis, there's digital editions, there are all these different forms of digital methods that have analog counterparts. And so one of the things that I say to people when they're just getting started in digital history is... Think about the methods you already use in your research and take a look at what the digital sort of equivalent is, right? So um, I do a lot of work with uh, sort of textual documents. And so I look at things like, um, you know, how does a court record look in a physical archive? Well, what is the digital equivalent? Like, what does it mean for me to make that document available online or, you know, um, I have a lot of colleagues who do things like they want to map documents, right? So there are people who are really interested in the movement and flow of information, and they do that stuff sort of manually on paper, right? They make lists of of where people appear and when they appear and where they're going from and to. And there's digital methods of doing that that make it easier to visualize all of those networks and those movements. So when I sort of introduce people to digital history, a lot of times what I'll say to historians is, you know, tell me what methods you're already using and let's look at what digital affordances can add to those methods. Now, you
0: talked about in the book um, digital archives and exhibits and the digital collections. Uh, give us some examples of those.
1: Yeah, so um digital archives is its own sort of specialization. So digital archives are an extension of the library and information science um sort of area of study where they've developed methods for digitizing, encoding, and making available um physical but also like born digital material that only exists in the digital space. So a digital archive basically is um a, a digital collection of materials that fits with archival standards, right? So it has sound metadata, it is preserved, it is, you know, uh, it aligns to all sort of the archival standards that archival professionals expect it to have. Um, And that's a little bit different from just a basic digital collection. So when I refer to a digital collection, what I really mean is a set of materials that have been digitized or are digital that I have put together thematically or based on a topic or based on an event, right? So the distinction there is an archive comes with um, sets of standards and and expectations of what it should should do and how it should function. And a digital collection doesn't necessarily have to do that. So a digital collection to some extent is much more flexible um, as a term. And so a lot of times when people say you know they've created an archive, well, what they've actually created is more of a digital collection that that fits their needs, but doesn't necessarily meet professional standards for preservation and access. Um, and that's a little bit different from a digital exhibit. So, a digital exhibit is basically the display of information in a in a space for the purposes of communicating a message. So, a digital exhibit can be things like. Um, an anal- it could be a compendium to an analog. So, for example, the Smithsonian Institution has a, a massive touring exhibit called Waterways, and they've built these incredible physical exhibits that move to different states and different locations throughout the United States. And one of the things that's great about that is it allows the local host to sort of develop their own little local installation about the physical exhibit and, and the topic of waterways. Well, that's really great while the Waterways exhibit is at your institution, but what happens after it leaves? And so one of the things I've been working on with a partner, um, my colleague and I, Rebecca Shrum, um, with Indiana Humanities, the Funding Council for Indiana, is to create a digital exhibit where all of these local partners who host the Waterways exhibit can create a digital artifact. They can take all their physical stuff and digitize it and put it up onto the internet And allow people to still experience that physical exhibit, even if they never make it to the physical space when it's being hosted. Excellent. Now, how can our students develop and reach
0: potential audiences uh, with this historical output?
1: You know, it's, it's funny. When I think about our students and their work, one of the places they really start from is their own family histories and their own community histories. You know, sometimes I think you know, we have these grand plans and we think, oh, students are going to be interested in this topic or that topic. But a lot of times when you sit down with them for the first time, one of the the great ways to get them interested is to ask them to do things like interview family members or, you know, maybe they're part of a particular community group or a, a sports club and to say, you know, what would it look like to do a history of your family or a history of this group that you're involved in. And I tend to find when we say those things to students, part of what happens is they learn things about themselves and their family and their communities that they might not up otherwise. But it also sometimes allows us to identify areas where they're really interested in something historically that otherwise we wouldn't have known. So, you know, I teach a lot of classes around indigeneity and about indigenous uh, America. And I'll have students say things like, I didn't realize until you know I took this class that you know I needed to do research on this claim that a family member makes about us being indigenous. Or I have students in, in classes that will do things like interview grandparents or, or friends and find out things like you know they served in in the military or they you know were present when Martin Luther King gave their his speech on the Mall, the National Mall. And so part of what I encourage in terms of thinking about connecting to students is, you know, they are consumers of the digital world. They experience a lot of things in ways that, that we may not have as instructors. And so a lot of times I'll say to students, you know, what format works best for you to communicate? What you've learned. So sometimes I get podcasts, and sometimes I get students who have created music, and I have students who've created websites and Twitter threads and TikToks and all of those things reach the students where they are. And I think that's one of the most important steps forward for history education is is to really try and reach students where their interests are and not just to enforce on them that they have to meet a certain standard that to them may seem very arbitrary and odd and weird. Now let's come back to the learning outcomes. You talked about in the book
0: curricular arc. Tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, so um, a curricular arc, which is not a unique or new concept, is the notion that you want to sort of build students' um, abilities sort of step by step. So uh, a curricular arc basically is about understanding the level of complexity that you can expect from a student and that you increasingly ask them to do more and more complex tasks. So for example, a student, the, f- the first time they're out in a class, maybe what they learn is some basic you know, HTML, how to write a basic web page or how to build CSS, which is a cascading style sheet. It's, it's what makes the internet pretty. So maybe in that introductory level class, they learn the basics of HTML and CSS. And then the next class, because they already know HTML and CSS, maybe what they focus on is how to turn that HTML and CSS into properly encoded text that can be displayed on the web. And then maybe in that next class, you ask them to build a digital edition or to contribute to a digital edition that uses text encoding markup to really discover and analyze a document. And then maybe in that senior level or that next step class, because they've already built this rich digital edition, maybe you ask them to do some computational analysis on the edition and to look at things like how language is being used or how ideas move through the document or how word choices change. So when I talk about a curricular arc, really what I'm talking about is sort of a a Lego based or a, 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 you know, adding on capacity as classes transform for the student. And I, and I think that's really key is that, you know, if you start students with basics, by the time they've taken multiple classes in a digital space, they can do more complex and complicated things. And one of the things that my book suggests as well is that, you know, students don't come to you a lot of times with no knowledge of technology, Um, You know, if you get a student who, for example, is really interested in coding and hacking, they may come into your class already proficient in HTML and CSS and, and other things. And so part of what's great about the digital history classroom is that you can actually do an assessment with students of what they already know and how to do, and then you can sort of change the learning outcomes based on those students' knowledge already having, right? So maybe our student who comes in, knowing how to do some basic programming actually their class project is you know building a small mobile app whereas someone else in the class may not have any of those abilities and so they're doing very different sort of outcomes and tasks and that's one of the great things about digital history is you can really sort of meet students and challenge them based on their own abilities and their own knowledge now i know we have some listeners with this question,
0: can a historian who has limited technical skills, how can they equip themselves to be ready to engage in this digital environment?
1: There's a lot of options. You know, when I started 20 something years ago, there weren't a lot of options for how to learn to do this stuff. But at this point, you know, the field's been running for 25, 30 years, and there are really great options for simple things like, there's online tutorials, there's online workshops. Um, a lot of people attend universities or, or have universities near them that offer trainings that are free and open to the public. So, you know, when somebody's getting started and wants to learn how to do digital history, but they don't necessarily wanna be somebody who's, you know, writing code or poking around underneath it, what I'll say to them is, you know, what are you interested in accomplishing? And what's the simplest way we can accomplish what you want to do? So, for example, you know, there's a lot of of services that allow you to build websites without understanding HTML and CSS. There's a lot of services that there are softwares you can use that let you do things like, you know, creating a podcast or creating a video or creating you know, all kinds of different digital artifacts without necessarily having to be a technical expert. So you can attend a training institute like HILT. Um, You can attend any of, there's dozens of those that happen across the world in a lot of different contexts. You could go to a library workshop, you can sit on Zoom and and attend a lot of trainings on Zoom, or you could learn the way I did, which was sitting around asking myself, how do I do this? And then literally looking across the internet, trying to identify someone else who'd done that and emulating what they do. Uh, And in fact, I was sitting at my desk today and I'm I'm working on some data on, on treaties, indigenous treaties. And I literally spent an hour and a half today looking around, trying to identify, had someone else done the exact thing I needed to do? And could I figure out what they'd done and how they'd done it? Um, And that's actually one of the best things about digital history is as a field of study, we don't mind when people struggle and we don't mind when people fail. And in fact, often you learn the most from not being able to do something. And so when somebody says to me, I want to get started trying something, that's the right answer. Like, try it, see if it works, see if you like it, because all of this is, is very much individually based, you know. I'm somebody who's very linear as a thinker. And so I do great with tools and softwares that are built for linear people. I don't do as well with tools and software that are built for multiplicities and complexities. And so, you know, when someone says, let's get started in digital history, my answer is sit down at a computer and try it and see what works for you. And if what you're doing doesn't work, try something different.
0: Well, what is the overall message you would like the reader to have once they finish this book?
1: I think the overall message is, you know, don't be scared of trying something in your classroom and letting it letting it not work. One of the things my students say again and again and again in my classes is that they like watching me struggle and learn along with them. And so even setting students up as partners in the learning process and saying to them, I want us to try something new. I want us to develop a video. I want us to build a digital exhibit. I want us to learn how to digitize something. You know, students find that incredibly interesting that you as the person teaching are learning right beside them. And I think that's really the message of the book is don't be afraid to try something and decide either that it works for you or that you don't like it and don't want to do it again. And you don't have to be a technological expert to do these things. You really just have to be willing to try and learn and and improve. And that's the major message of the book is that as teachers, we're continually trying and learning and improving ourselves. And so we just want to welcome that in the classroom with the students. And digital history is the perfect place to do that. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us
0: what the next project you're working on?
1: Sure. So I'm actually here in Scotland working on it. Um, It's a project looking at uh, Indigenous data and a process of learning about and talking about decolonization. So what does it mean to take historical data that was created in the process of colonization and basically reckon with the fact that it, it has been used and misused against Indigenous peoples? Uh, both in the United States, but also more globally. And so I'm here in Scotland doing some research and talking to some colleagues. um, And that next project is going to be a series of articles looking at how we think about using evidence from the past that might come with some pretty sticky ethical questions.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thanks.